What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's just ask God to help us. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning as your people redeemed by the blood of your Son. We know that the Lord speaks and the Holy Spirit is working in this text for your glory. Father, it is a hard text to pick our way through, but we would love to see you glorified this morning. And as much as we want to see you glorified, we know that you long even more so for your glory to be known and revealed and delighted in. And so we are confident that you will give us your spirit to help us to understand this morning. Lord, my prayer is that as you pour out your spirit on the text, as you pour out the spirit on your people to understand what it is you're saying, that we would do our part to follow carefully through every little detail, every twist and turn. We have to hold many things in the back of our mind before we can arrive at the conclusion. And so I pray that you would help your people to hold all of these complex ideas closely together as we work our way through it, that you would be glorified. And so our prayer, Lord, this morning is help us to know your glory in your word. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. I'm sure you've heard that nursery rhyme, if not once, then perhaps a thousand times. It's not actually, uh, and you might be thinking that this comes from Lewis Carroll's uh, classic book, Through the Looking Glass, more commonly known to you and me today as Alice in Wonderland, in which she interacts with Humpty Dumpty. She has this conversation with him. But believe it or not, that riddle, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, it actually predates Carroll's work. The riddle uh, employed this label, Humpty Dumpty, uh, which was an 18th century slang for a short and clumsy person. In uh, 18th century United Kingdom, if you were short and awkward and tripping over yourself, they would call you a Humpty Dumpty. How many of you today feel like a Humpty Dumpty? Don't raise your hand. Uh, We love you, and uh, we think the world of you. I myself am not short, but I have, I think I'm a Humpty Dumpty. Like, I I am quite, I can be quite clumsy sometimes, sometimes. But of course, it is not merely a rhyme, it is intended to be a riddle. And it was put to school children in kindergarten for a couple of reasons. Number one, and the, the idea there was, of course, to help them to learn certain elements of music, 
rhythm and timing and all of that stuff, which I still don't know to this very day. But it was also intended to be a sort of a brain tease. Who is Humpty Dumpty? Now, you and I already know the answer. It's an egg. It's an egg. The idea was that you would puzzle over this. You'd think about all the elements of it. What is short and awkward and once broken cannot be put back together again? Well, of course, it's speaking of an egg. We know this intuitively because we've all now read Lewis Carroll's book, or we've seen the show, perhaps, Alice in Wonderland, as we know it, and it's there that he provides the answer. And if you'll recall, Alice, when she falls down into this wonderland, this rabbit hole, so to speak, she encounters Humpty Dumpty, and they have this interesting dialogue. They go back and forth, and essentially Humpty Dumpty says that he's not accountable and he's not responsible for his words. He says to her, when I use a word, it means just whatever I choose it to mean, nothing more and nothing less, Humpty Dumpty says to Alice. The question is, replies Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. Humpty Dumpty replies, the question is, which is to be master? That is all. In our day, unbelief in God is the expected norm. The project of secularization, which is this, I, this dividing of belief in the supernatural and the unseen from the pragmatic, practical, everyday, mundane, the project of secularization has come full swing now to where we live in a society where it is not normal to believe in God, where we don't talk about God, where God does not form the basis of our political discourse. Secularization and the project of secularization has come full swing now to where individuals who believe in God are now considered bizarre. We're the oddballs that have mental health concerns where we are convinced that there are things out there that we can't see. And the world looks at Christians and our faith and our belief and considers that to be just bizarre. We might then, taking this classic passage from Carol's work, and apply it to our day and age. You see, you and I have wrestled with questions, and God in His grace has provided us with answers to those questions. But the world does not want to ask questions, and if the world is confronted with certain questions... They don't want the answers. And so we might reword Humpty Dumpty's dialogue with Alice in Wonderland this way. If we were to paraphrase it and make it a modern parable, we might say that Alice's retort to Humpty Dumpty would go something like this. The question is whether you can continue to ignore the answers to your questions for all of eternity. To which Humpty Dumpty might retort, no, no, no. The real question is whether I want answers to be master over me at all. The questions are good. And as we're going to see today in Romans, asking questions of the faith is perfectly fine. Answers are better. And the God that we worship is so great and so glorious that he does have answers as Humpty Dumpty poses it to Alice in Wonderland, will words be master over me? And of course, he's speaking critically there, saying, no, I will not be subjected to words. The question for us today is, will truth have mastery over us? Will we 
be humble enough to receive the answers that God gives. Now, this point has been made repeatedly in the book of Romans back in chapter 2. 2.25 emphasizes the sameness of both Jews and Gentiles. The fact that both need to be transformed on the inside, that external rituals and traditions don't matter. But if this is true, that both Jews and Gentiles need to be transformed by the Spirit, then it raises the question, what is the point of the whole Old Testament in God calling a group of people out of the world and setting them apart and making a covenant with them and giving them certain rituals such as circumcision? What was the point of all of that? And so at this juncture in the book of Romans, we come to a really critical turning point where if you're Jewish and you're listening to Paul present all of these arguments, you now are going to be tempted, if not outright motivated, to jump out of your chair and say, wait a second, Paul, wait a second. If God is doing something new, if he has changed course or changed direction, and if it is the case that everything he's been doing in the past is useless and and has no purpose, then essentially what you're saying is that God has somehow become different, operating in a different way, doing something differently. And if God changes, then he's not the true God because we know the true God. He knows the beginning from the end. He makes clear what is going to come to pass. He is sovereign. He is omniscient. He knows all things. And what you're suggesting here with this Jesus character that you're introducing to us is that that God has somehow changed the name of the game. And therefore, there's no real purpose to being Jewish. And we won't have that because there is certain promises, there are certain promises in the Old Testament that we hold to that we know God is going to bring to completion. And we also know God had a purpose in establishing the nation of Israel. And if you're just going to sweep all out away, then you're preaching a false gospel contrary to what we know to be true from the scriptures. And so it's at this juncture that Paul pauses, and he has to address that objection. So he says in chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And he's been hammering it so hard in chapter 2 that you have to come to faith in Christ if you're going to be saved, that you'd expect him almost to say at this point, in response to this rhetorical question, well, there isn't much advantage because you all need Jesus. But that is not what Paul says. Now, before we start to wind our way through this rat's nest of questions and back and forth answers, I think it'd be helpful to try to give you an illustration of what's taking place here before we jump in. Scholars will tell you that what we're dealing with here, they're going to use a fancy sort of academic term for it. They're going to call it disjunctive discourse. Can you say disjunctive? I feel like, you know, Dora the Explorer. Can you say disjunctive discourse? So disjunctive discourse, you know, this is a fancy term. You know, you don't need to remember that term. I'm going to illustrate it for you because we all have seen it happen at different points in time. I want you to imagine a husband and a wife perhaps in retirement, and he's at home, and they're enjoying a lovely morning together, and she has made something for her husband to eat for lunch. And the wife poses the question to her husband, uh, for lunch today, do you want bread or do you want soup? So it's a question with two possibilities, alternative, different possibilities. 
These are different types of foods, but they're not so mutually exclusive that you couldn't have them together at the same time. You could have bread with your soup. So far, so good. Nevertheless, we've entered into what could be understood to be disjunctive discourse, where the nature of the dialogue is talking about different realities, different possibilities. So, supposing that the husband hears all of this, he says, you know what, that's a great question, I think I'll go with the soup. But he's had a rough morning. He's been out working hard in his garden. And knowing this, the wife, she is so loving and ever so kind, she says, you know what, you, are, you have been working so hard this morning, and I am so proud of you for the way you've been laboring out there in that garden. Would you like to eat now, or would you like to take a nap first? So in the first disjunctive question, these were different possibilities, but they were not mutually exclusive. Soup or bread? You could technically have them both together. Do you want to eat or do you want to sleep? Now, these are mutually exclusive possibilities that will require a decision. You see, you have to wrestle it out. You have to, this elevates the mental exertion that is involved because you have to choose. It's a hard choice between one or the other. The husband has to weigh out more carefully and more precisely the benefits, the pros and the cons associated with each alternative course of action. How hungry is he? Has he worked so hard that he's just dying for food? Is he just famished? Or alternatively, how tired is he? Did he work so hard that he thinks at this point in time he really needs rest more so than food? Now, the husband weighs out all these options and he says, I know what I'll do. I will do both. I will eat my soup lying down on the couch. And he says, dear wife, thank you so much for giving me all these options. You want me to lay down. You want me to have a nap. You want me to eat soup. I'm going to do it all. To which the wife, looking at her nice couch with this brand new sort of duvet that she's, she's just finished. It's kind of spread there. And she imagines the reality of her husband taking this bowl of tomato soup and splattering it all over her white duvet. And she thinks, you know, that's the most ridiculous course of action. And she says, you know, I really don't think you should do that. I think you probably should sit at the table and eat your soup and then lie down. Or you could lie down and I can keep the soup hot. And after you've had a nap for a bit, then you can come to the table and eat your soup there. But the husband says, no, I will have both. I can have my cake and eat it too. I can have my cake and eat it too. To which she then asks the ultimate disjunctive question. And I know husbands have heard this before. Are you really that stupid? Or would you even be smart enough to know how stupid that is? Are you really that stupid or would you even... Now, this is a significant disjunctive question. If I say I am smart, the way it's worded is to imply that my intelligence ought to lead me to the conclusion that this is still a stupid course of action. But then what should I say? Should I say, yes, I am that stupid? 
Because then she could come back and say, well, if you're smart enough to know that you are in fact that stupid, then why are you... You see, it doesn't matter which way he goes in answering the question now. Whichever direction he goes, he is going to betray the reality that he knows what he is doing is silly and he shouldn't have done it in the first place. But of course, husbands don't respond that way. We aren't that smart. We don't think through all these different possibilities and the brinkmanship that's involved in a simple question over whether or not to have soup or to take a nap. But that kind of brinkmanship is exactly what we see happening here in Romans chapter 3. And the way that Paul is walking his imaginary conversation partner, who is Jewish, through his different concepts and topics is he wants to basically drive them to the point where even though they might insist that they can do their own thing and have it their own way, sooner or later they're going to arrive at a conclusion where it is inescapable that they will not have God, they will not have the Heavenly Father if they continue to pursue the law. That is what Paul is driving at here. But he wants to do so in such a way that they will still understand that having the law has benefits. And so we begin to work our way. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the questions that are posed, Paul posing these questions, says, what is the point of being a Jew? He's asking this as though he is, he, he is speaking on behalf of Jews. And you'll recall, Paul has gone all over the world. He has preached in all kinds of cities. He's gone into synagogues. He has argued. He has reasoned time and again with the Jews. And so these are not abstract, hypothetical questions that might be asked. These are undoubtedly conversations that he's had dozens upon dozens of times with real Jews wrestling with how to escape the reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They're arguing against it. So these are real conversation pieces. So, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. We have to place our faith in the Messiah. It's no longer about keeping the law. It's about believing in Christ. Then what was the point of being a Jew? What is the point of circumcision? Why do we do these things? And Paul responds. He says, the advantage in being Jewish is this. The Jews have been given the oracles or the revelation of God, as revealed and contained, of course, in the 39 books of the Old Testament that we have today. And so Jews, therefore, having been given the scriptures, there's two things that they have. Number one, the blessings that have been promised if they remain faithful in their covenant with God, they'll have those blessings. Number two, they are also warned of the curses that God will punish them with if they don't keep covenant faithfulness with the Lord. So you have an idea here of covenant and law. In being given the covenant, they have a relationship with God. In being given the covenant, they understand the curses that come if they break covenant. And that shows them more about the character of God, that he's righteous and holy. So far, so good. But then the next set of questions come. Understanding that to be the case, that we've got the scriptures and we understand who God is because of our understanding of him through the scriptures and the covenantal relationship that we have with him, then the question is, in verse 3, what if some of the Jews were faithless? That is, what if they actually did break the law, break the old covenant? Does that somehow nullify God's faithfulness? And here's where we have to start thinking a little bit more critically. If the Jews attempt to keep the law as a path 
towards salvation is actually a failure to be faithful to God, which is what Paul has been arguing. And if an attempt to keep the law is actually only the breaking of the covenant, then the Jews are simply bringing upon themselves the curses that are recorded in the law, even as they are striving to keep the law as a path towards salvation and reconciliation with God. So, God promised blessings to us if we kept the law, not cursing. If, in trying to keep the law, all we are doing is succeeding in cursing ourselves, well then, Paul, you have a little problem. You see, it's not just us who are being faithless. God would be faithless too. You say, wait a minute, how, how would God be faithless if you're the ones breaking the law? Well, you see, we know God is blessing us Jews. This is the reply that would come back. And he's blessing our nation, and we see it today. In fact, we know he's blessing us because he brought us back out of exile from Babylon several centuries ago. And in fact, he allowed us to rebuild the temple. And at the time of this writing, we still have said temple, and we can still go there and worship. Now, if it's true that God wants us to worship Jesus, and we reject Jesus, and we keep going to the temple and doing the law, don't you think God would make that really clear? And indeed, many of you are at this point are saying, ah, you see, there's something coming. But we're not there at this point on time in terms of the writing. The Jerusalem temple will be destroyed in 70 AD, but we're not quite there yet. And they are holding to these realities within their time that God must surely be favoring the Jews. He, they, go, they would have probably even gone on to say, in fact, not only are we blessed, we have been brought back to our native land and we've got the temple, but in fact, God is doing all kinds of great things throughout the world. Moses is read in every major city, in every synagogue, and the Jewish faith is going forth everywhere. And if the law was wrong, and if keeping the law was wrong, then why would God be allowing all of these things to happen? Now, that's all subjective, but there are also objective concrete scriptural promises that they could have pointed to. The Jews would have argued that they had been given eschatological end-of-times kind of promises in the Bible. You know, those end-of-days kind of promises. And so we have those promises which they know God is going to fulfill to them in the end of days. For example, God promises in Isaiah that he will one day banish ungodliness from Jacob. In Isaiah chapter 59, and Paul will actually even quote this passage later on in Romans, in Romans chapter 9, in Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, it says, a redeemer will come from Zion to those in Jacob to turn Jacob from transgression. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. They would have said, God promised us that he would send us a redeemer. And this is supposed to happen at the end of days. This is how they would have been reading Isaiah 59. Well, it's not the end of the world. The world is still happening, they would have argued. And yet we have these end of days promises that show us that God is not done with us as a nation. He is not done with Israel. Therefore, we have 
subjective promises. We still have the temple, and we still, God is blessing our nation, and we also have objective promises in the scriptures. And of course, above all, we have the law, Paul. If in trying to keep the law, we are only bringing curses upon ourselves, Paul, then what this shows is that God is still sticking with us even as we are breaking the rules and cursing ourselves. If the law only brings death, then God is breaking his own covenant, according to Paul's gospel, because he remains committed to us. So, what you're alleging, Paul, if what you're saying is true, is that God is contradicting himself. Since God cannot contradict himself... Therefore, Paul, you must be wrong. How many of you did I lose at this point? Okay, Judah, that's one. Okay, two. So two out of like 150. It's pretty, pretty good. I feel pretty decent with that. You guys come talk to me after the, after the worship service. I'll try to bring you up to speed. The argument here is God is remaining faithful to us you're saying we are breaking God's law, we're, we're not being faithful to Him. And yet, if that's true, if we're being faithless to God, God is still being faithful to us. And if we're breaking the law, the law says that God has to curse us. So because He's still being faithful to us, really God is breaking His own law. That's what they're saying. Therefore, Paul, you must be wrong. Now, Paul responds, It's not a contradiction, he says, it's a paradox. These are things which appear to be opposite, but they are not actually opposite in the sense that they don't violate each other in an absolute sense. God is not breaking his covenant. Paul goes on to say that he has actually enforced the covenant through implementing the curses that he promised when he made the covenant. And despite those curses, God is still remaining faithful to honor his covenant with Abraham. The covenantal curses serve two purposes. They prove that God is faithful to his word and that he keeps his promises, even when keeping his promises requires him to punish Israel. The punishment of Israel reinforces the trustworthiness of what God has said. Number two, the curses are intended to wean Israel off the law by showing Israel that Israel can never keep the law. This is done in order to bring Israel to a place where they trust in the word of God over their own supposed ability to keep the law. To illustrate this, Paul will quote Psalm 51. So at this point, you're like, wait a minute, I'm so confused. The question that he poses is this. What if some Jews were faithless? Does their faithlessness, that is their breaking of the covenant, make God a covenant breaker as well, since he continues to remain faithful to Israel? Paul says no, and he's going to quote David in Psalm 51. You'll remember Psalm 51, that famous, famous prayer of confession in which David pours out his heart to the Lord in the aftermath of his adultery with Bathsheba. 
David quotes Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the second half of that verse is what is presented to us in the text, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now you're reading that and you're like, I'm not sure how that actually squares the whole faithful, faithless debate, if we break the law and God stays true to us, doesn't that make him a lawbreaker? I'm not really sure how that is an answer. And this is, again, where you need to really understand Hebrew, Jewish uh, interpretation of the scriptures. David is the great king. And there was a promise that had been made to David. What we refer to as the covenant with David or the Davidic covenant. In the wake of David asking God if he could build God a temple in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 11, God makes a stunning number of promises to David, including that he would establish his throne forever and that Israel would have peace and that specifically the house of David would have peace from all of its enemies. God says, because you have asked to build me a house, I will secure your throne forever and you will know peace. Then David goes and he has this affair with Bathsheba. And God sends the prophet Nathan to David to confront him. And one of the things that God says is, the sword shall never depart from your house and your house will not know peace because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. That seems pretty contradictory, does it not? It's not a contradiction, it's a paradox. God says to David, you will know peace. David sins, and the idea here is that David is still under the law. He's not like our politicians today who can decree things that other people have to follow and they themselves don't have to follow it. Old Testament Israel kings were intended to follow God's law because it was his law, not their law. And David being under the law is required to be faithful to the Lord. And the idea here is that when God makes a promise to David, God's going to keep that promise, assuming that David, of course, will be faithful to God. But then David is not faithful to God. And the question then is, how can God keep his promise to David to put Jesus on the throne as a son of David when David has broken covenantal faithfulness with the Lord. When God makes these promises of blessing, he uses sinful, fallen human beings. When those sinful, fallen human beings sin and step outside of the will of God, does God's plan therefore go out the window? This is the nature of the argument that Israel, the Jews, are making against Paul's gospel. And Paul quotes this passage from Psalm 51. David is saying, against you and you only have I sinned, and yet your words are true, and your promises are right. And when you execute judgment, David says, you are blameless. In other words, what Paul is saying 
quoting David is that David knew the promise previously that had been made to him, and now he hears this punishment that God is handing out, and rather than saying, whoa, God, you're not being fair, you're breaking your previous promise. In other words, God, I had this other promise over here, and I thought maybe I could still be blessed and still have your blessing, even though I know I'm sinning against you, and you'd still have to keep your word to me because you are a true and faithful God. And when God punishes David, that is not David's response. His response is, yes, I've been punished. I don't understand how God's going to keep his promises. There appears to be a difficulty here. Nevertheless, I am convinced that God is blameless in the things that he says, in the judgments that he makes. Did David know how God was going to actually fulfill his promise? No way. He had no clue. But he was convinced somehow, some way, David was sure of this. God would be true. Israel's statement is, if what you're saying is right, we're breaking covenant, and obviously God cannot bring his promises to fulfillment because he has said he would bring these promises to fulfillment through us. Now, you and I can step back at this point in time and say, well, yeah, and he has. He sent his son Jesus. But Paul is not attacking them at that very point in which they are saying Jesus is wrong. He's attacking them at this other point where they're saying God can't keep promises in the way that you're describing. He's saying, yes, he can. And you are wrong to judge God for keeping promises in this supernatural, powerful way that he does. Now, it would be more time than what we have this morning for me to go through the whole Davidic line and show you how exactly God punished David's house and yet was still faithful to put Christ on his throne. Suffice it to say, he did it. He kept his word and he still punished the house of David, which is to say promises are fulfilled and he brings salvation through judgment. He brings salvation through judgment. We need to step back here at this point and recognize that we we sometimes have this idea that we're playing checkers and God is on another level. He's playing chess. And that's how we talk about it. We're playing checkers. God is playing chess. But that, again, just gives way the hubris and the arrogance of the human spirit. When we look and we understand how God is capable to do all of these supernatural and wonderful things, we need to step back and say, you know what? I thought I was playing checkers, but really I'm playing like tiddlywinks. I don't even know what game I'm playing. I'm playing marbles or something simple compared to what God is doing. I may have thought I was playing checkers and he was playing chess, but when I really see what he is doing, when I begin to scratch the surface of what God is doing, whatever game I thought I was playing, it is far less sophisticated and far more ordinary than what he is doing. He is glorious and magnificent and beautiful. And that's what Paul is trying to say here. You assume you know how God operates. You think you can puzzle it out, but this is where your logic goes horrifically wrong. God will not be known on the basis of human wisdom. And if you would stop and consider the inspiration of the scriptures, even your guy that you love, King David, acknowledged there was a difficulty here, but the difficulty was no match for God. He can keep his word. He can keep his promises, even when he makes promises to us that require a response from us. And we do not keep our end of the bargain 
God is not contingent upon us, and he knows all things before he speaks, and he will bring to pass all that he has promised. That brings us to question of God's competency in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, Paul, again, placing himself back into the position of these Jewish questioners, says, well, okay then, let's assume that's the case, that we are unrighteous and that God reveals his glory and can still somehow bring about marvelous fulfillment of Scripture even when we sin and we break our end of the deal. Well, then, shouldn't we just keep sinning more in order to serve the righteousness, in order to illustrate and show the righteousness of God? And so Paul poses the question, but if in our unrighteousness we're showing the righteousness of God, what then shall we say to that? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In other words, one of the questions that Paul heard in the synagogue when he's arguing about the reality of Christ is that, well, if all these things that you're saying are true, then what you're really saying is that God is so awesome that he can even work supernaturally to bring about his fulfillment of his promises when we sin against him. And that, yeah, we're, we think we're playing checkers, but we're not. We're playing some other game here. I'll tell you what, Paul, if our sin just shows how awesome God is, that he doesn't need us to keep his promises to us, well, then we should just show how awesome God is by living in sin. Like God is faithful, he can achieve, he can do anything he wants, so let's just sin it up, right? Isn't that what you're saying, Paul? And he clarifies that this is just ridiculous. He says, I'm speaking in a human way. But he goes on to say, no. He goes on to say, sorry, the, question, the second question that they pose there is that somehow God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on them. In other words, because God made these moral demands, knowing ultimately that we would fail, then shouldn't we just go on living in sin in order to illustrate his power and his glory? But then the other question presents itself then. If God reveals how awesome and how powerful he is knowing we will sin and anticipating our sin and planning for our sin, then doesn't that make him kind of a jerk to judge us when he knew all along that we were going to fail? After all, if we're all doomed to failure from the very beginning, then somehow doesn't that make God unrighteous to judge us? And Paul responds, me geneta. It's in the emphatic in Greek, no. Never is this the case. By no means, he says. God must be righteous in his judgment. He is righteous in his judgment. He has to be righteous in his judgment because how else, Paul says, is God going to be able to judge the world? So let's play devil's advocate for just a second and ponder a future where God is an unrighteous judge. Let's just go down that road. If God is not righteous in his judgment, if he's an unrighteous judge, then what that means is that justice is not done. And if justice is not done, if there is no fairness or consistency in the way that God judges, then what would the point be in keeping the law in the first place? Their argument is we got to keep the law as a path to salvation. We begin to go through this logic. We begin to argue through it. And now guess what they're saying? They have logicked their way to a place where they're like, you know what? God isn't righteous then. But he is, Paul says. The question he forces back upon them 
is that they need to evaluate the premise of their argument, and they need to realize that they've lost the plot of the whole story at this point. It is the righteousness of God that makes it possible for justice to be done. And because God is the only one righteous, he is the only one fit to judge. In fact, it is the righteousness of God that makes God holy. And it is the righteousness of God which will bring about the salvation of the elect, the redemption of the world. So, they then say, okay, so God can still do this even if I don't fully get it. Verses 7 to 8. If through my lie, the truth of God abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? In other words, if God is using our sin, again, to further illustrate his glory, then we should just go on living in sin. This is bizarre thinking. We've, we've basically logicked our way to a, a point of absolute insanity. It fails to comprehend the destructive nature of sin, this line of argument. There's a reason why God has to come in order to save us. It's because we sin. And going on living in sin in order to somehow illustrate the righteousness and the holiness of God and his power and his ability to keep his promises despite our sin, to suggest we should just keep on sinning in order to illustrate that, misses the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Sin hurts you. It hurts those around you. It sets fires to society. It tears apart the fabric of our culture and our civilization. Sin leads to anarchy. God has come to bring peace. There are no victimless sins and every choice to do wrong harms someone. If not right away, then inevitably. If not directly, then it will sooner or later indirectly. And at some level, all of humanity suffers, and you suffer most because you defied the glory of God. Note Paul's final remark. Referring to those who would justify their willful sin with such twisted logic, he declares simply, their condemnation is just. We made it. We got through those eight verses. Now, maybe you didn't get there with me. If I could just put a bow on this for you. The world rejects faith in God. They want to ask questions, really good questions. They want to look at all of these difficulties in all their doubt and skepticism and cynicism, and they want to ask questions. What we see Paul doing here is telling you and me that doubt is acceptable for a period of time, that questions are good, questions which are truly and sincerely seeking understanding are better, answers are best. Church, what we are encountering in the world around us are individuals asking questions 
without any real interest or investment in the answers. In our day and age, we are encountering a number of trends within evangelical Western Christianity. I'm sure you've heard of some of these terms. I am an ex-evangelical, a play on the word evangelical, to say that I've walked away from my faith in Christianity, I've walked away from my church and everything my parents taught me to believe. Or we use the term, I'm sure you've heard it, I am deconstructing, deconstruction. And if you really look at what these individuals are doing, they are coming up to their faith. They are realizing that perhaps their walk with God is built on borrowed convictions, that they are believing in God, not because they've ever really wrestled with things on their own, but it's just how they were raised and it's what their parents taught them. Indeed, this is my fear for our students at First Baptist Classical Academy that we'll raise them in an environment where they will know that we believe in God and for a season they will think they ought to believe in God, but we will, I'm fearful, never ever create an opportunity where they will wrestle on their own with their doubts and their struggles and their fears and come to concrete answers. What we desire more than anything else is not that our kids would grow up and graduate high school with borrowed convictions, but that they would have wrestled with the text, gotten into the nitty-gritty, you know, thorny details of what the Word of God has to say, and they will come out on the other side of that struggle, not less confident in God, but more confident in God. What I aim to do, what you need to do, parents, Sunday school teachers, all of us, with our neighbors, our co-workers, our colleagues, our family members, is to say, it is great that you have questions. That is wonderful. Don't just ask the questions as a means to justifying unbelief. Answer, uh, sorry, ask the questions knowing that the God that we worship, though faith in him is simple, The God that we worship is infinite and infinitely complex. And his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And yes, there are some difficult things out there. And no, maybe I don't have the answers right now, but I promise you, while the questions are good, the answers are best. And he answers all your questions. The problem that we have, church, this is speaking to you and me, is that far too often, when presented with difficult, thorny questions, we respond with glib and trite answers. We think ourselves cute when we answer with a soundbite. It's not entirely our fault. There are a lot of circumstances that have contributed to this. To think deep theology requires effort. We've got to memorize Bible verses. We've got to read through things. And so we don't like to do that because we're spiritually lazy. Therefore, we like to just get that soundbite snippet. And then when someone comes who's been genuinely wrestling, we dismiss them with our soundbite and they see through it. We want our kids to have solid convictions. Guess what that means? We ourselves must have solid convictions. And when they come asking questions, we don't dismiss them with trite and glib answers, we sit down with them and we say, great question. And you may not know the answer. Fine. You say, child, listen to me. My father has never lied. And he provides the answers. And I will get you the answer to that question. 
We won't dismiss it out of hand. We won't give the glib, trite answer that we're all happiest to give because it's the least commitment intellectually on our part. We must learn to wrestle together. We come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. I got into this text this week and I thought to myself, oh, no. This is one of those passages where I'm going to lose half of you as I work my way through every last little detail. And I began to say, Lord, help me. And I put a prayer request out on the prayer page. I said, pray for me because this is a nitty-gritty passage. And I want to say thank you for praying for me. But let's ask another question because I was praying for you too. That you would see that sometimes God's word has really hard things that require time and energy to work our way through it. The answers are there, but do you as a congregation have the patience and the discipline to follow all the way through a sermon such as this that's nitty-gritty? I pray that you do. Now, for some of us, I know we're not accustomed to it, and our whole world is bent on breaking our train of thought and distracting our focus. That is exactly what social media is there for. Doom scrolling, just keep scrolling. Don't think too much, just keep scrolling. Pop-up advertisement. Keep on scrolling. Pop-up advertisement. You wonder why you struggle to have a conversation with someone in a casino who's just pulling levers all day? Look at yourself in the mirror with your cell phone. How many times have you been trying to talk to someone who just instinctively reached for their cell phone and started going at it and you were like mid-sentence? That's all of us. We've all had that. You've been on the receiving end of it. You've done it to others. Our society wants this. Satan wants this. But God calls us to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And indeed, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. We can't give glib and trite answers. Next week, we're going to talk more about what this ought to mean for us as a church. I'm going to go at this sermon next week from a totally different perspective, these same eight verses. But for today, I want to speak to the individuals who might be struggling with doubts and who might be considering becoming an exvangelical or deconstructing. I want to speak to you today, if that's you. Walking away from the faith might feel more authentic to you, but you will utterly perish. You see these guys, these famous athletes and celebrities, famous pastors, YouTube stars, whatever. They've gotten famous talking about Christianity, and then at some point in time, they decided they're going to walk away. And you're seeing all of this, and you're tempted. You're like, yeah, like I really looked up to that guy. I really admired him, and now he's left the faith. Maybe what we believe isn't true. Maybe I should start asking the same questions that they're asking. We have a graveside service next Saturday for a lady who loved the Lord. Go to that graveside service. Don't say a word and just listen to what is said there. And then try to go to the funeral service of an unbeliever and listen to what is said there. See, for all of the joy that we say there might be in questioning everything and seeing through everything and poking holes in everything, we will inevitably stumble upon points of hypocrisy and failure in the church. That happens. 
It's no different than being on a cruise liner and going down into the underbelly of that ship and finding pipes that are dripping water, leaking joints, hydraulic fluid dripping onto the floor. And you think to yourself, oh my goodness, this ship is a wreck. There are problems here. The mechanics of it are not sound. It's not a sound ship. What's the alternative? Because what the ex-evangelicals and the deconstructionists will tell you is that what you should do is jump off the ship into the icy cold Atlantic. And it gets noticed because if you've ever been on a cruise liner and someone has fallen overboard, everybody knows about it. It is a sensation. It is a sight to see. Everybody will rush to the edge and look and see, oh my goodness, this poor soul, he's overboard. Maybe it sounded like a good idea initially, but I'm here to tell you, for whatever hypocrisy, whatever difficulties you encounter in the church, whatever strained or awkward relationships you might know, nothing is more draining, more life-devouring than being in the cold, frigid waters of this world. And for whatever problems there might be in the church, Jesus is still there. You want to toy with questions about why things are the way they are? Indeed, let's ask those questions. You have concerns with what you see happening in the church? Those are legitimate concerns. If your solution is to jump overboard, judgment comes. And that solution is no solution at all, which is why Paul says their judgment their condemnation is just. Don't jump. Don't jump overboard. If you're here today and you're hearing me say these words, my appeal to you, I can flip the page. Paul looks at the perniciousness of stubborn unbelief. Who twist, he looks at Jews who twist logic, and he says, in conclusion, their condemnation is just. They think they are being clever, but Paul says they are headed for a great fall. So I urge you today, if you're wrestling with questions or doubts, please, please, please come and talk to me. Please, please come and talk to any of our deacons, any of our pastors. Indeed, there are a lot of godly people in this church. You could probably go and talk to any one of them if you're struggling with a question or you have a doubt or there's something you don't understand that doesn't quite make sense to you. There are good answers. There are great questions. But whatever decision you make about who to go talk to, if you choose to talk to no one and you walk away, you will become just like Humpty Dumpty. Humpty Dumpty's response to Alice in Wonderland, the question is whether or not answers will have mastery over me. Truth will reign. And if you walk away, the children's rhyme becomes true of you. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all of the king's horses and all of the king's men could not put you back together again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such a difficult passage of Scripture, and we've had to work our way through it so meticulously. It is so hard to trace Paul's line of argument all the way through this whole thing. I pray, God, that you would help us to understand 
the nature of the questions and the doubts and the skepticisms and ultimately the twisted logic that was employed by the Jews to justify their unbelief. Our prayer this morning, Lord, for any who are gathered here who are having doubts, Lord, please keep them from using their doubts to twist their logic to such a suicidal goal as to believe that the world offers something better than what you offer. Lord, help them to know that life and salvation and happiness is with your son, Jesus, and help them to believe and trust in him, we pray in Christ's name.